Well, good morning to you again, and a special hello to those of you who are joining us online as well this morning. We are in part three of a four-part series of reflections we're calling Together. And if you are looking around you and noticing that some of your fellow worshipers are wearing these blue t-shirts with the yellow word lift across it, it's because we are also uh, reprising and refreshing what is a two-year vision for impact for the kingdom of God we call Lift. Uh, this was a venture that we undertook uh, a year ago now as a congregation uh, to build our faith and discipleship and to strengthen the stewardship support that leads to all kinds of practical impacts on people through the ministries of Christ Church and through our mission out in the world. And there is so much fruit from this already, and we'll be sharing more about that in the days to come, but I simply want to say thank you to all of you who have been supporters of our Lyft initiative, and also to those of you who even today might open your hearts to the possibility of being part of this amazing movement of God's grace through our church's life. If you have not picked up already a copy of the um, Lift Together booklets that we've been furnishing at our literature stations, or uh, may have been, perhaps gotten one from one of our ushers this morning, this is a great resource. I welcome you to turn to page 28 in the booklet if you have it with you, uh, as it gives you a place to take notes and to reflect on the topic of discussion here today. And if you're online today and don't have that booklet uh, in your hands, please know that if you go to our website and just click on the uh, lift uh, icon in the upper part of the website and, and the, lift more, the learn more tab will take you to a, an online version of that booklet that will be helpful to you. In the first week of our Together series, I tried to make the point that in God's Word, we are frequently invited to make hard right turns. The Bible's word for this is repentance. Uh, but these hard right turns are necessary to make over the course of our lives for the simple reason that traveling the way of Jesus often means separating ourselves, turning from the the well-traveled, wide road of life as is commonly lived by so many people, and to find our way onto a narrower, uh, less traveled kind of path that leads to the kingdom of God and to all of the blessing that comes from living according to God's uh, principles. Uh, one of the crucial turns that Jesus calls us to make, and it's a frequent theme of his teaching throughout the Gospels, is the turn off of the very popular and crowded road of materialism, or what we might in our culture today call consumer materialism, and onto the narrower path of generosity and of servanthood. And this, again, is just such a regular part of the teaching of Jesus in his parables, in his explicit teaching, that it's difficult to, to ignore it, um, this call to make that particular turn. Uh, last week, Tracy and I, in the second episode of this uh, series, went on to suggest that if we're overly preoccupied with getting stuff, as so many people are, and storing stuff, and cleaning stuff, and dusting stuff, and reorganizing stuff, and upgrading stuff, if this is the pattern of our lives, and it's really easy to fall into that, I plead guilty myself uh, so much of the time, uh, we also miss out on on the experience, the joyful experience we might have known of seeing the miracles that God does 
when we entrust what we have, even the little that we have, to his hands. And we talked about the story of the little boy who gave up the barley loaves and the fish, put them into the hands of Jesus, and the wondrous thing that Jesus then was able to do with that simple gift. Today, I just want to reflect with you a bit on, around the idea that just as we need to be prayerful and, uh, and careful in our approach to spending, the Bible also challenges us to be thoughtful about our approach to saving. And, and, and managing our spending, managing our debt, managing our saving, these are three pieces of healthy biblical stewardship. And I wish we had longer time to really go into all of those dimensions together. Saving is an important part of, of the act of stewardship. Um, but, but, but we have to think carefully about how we go about our saving even as we go about our spending. And this idea gets advanced in a really famous parable of Jesus that is found in Luke chapter 12. And I want to invite you to join with me in studying that passage today. If you have your own Bible with you or on your phone, uh, I know we've got some in the pew racks in front of you, you might find it helpful to turn to Luke chapter 12 at verse 16. Listen to the words of Jesus. The ground of a certain rich man yield an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store up my crops. And then he said, ah, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. You've ever heard that uh, phrase before, eat, drink, and be merry. It's now a part of our popular culture. Most people have no idea it comes from this story uh, of Jesus. I want to invite you to think about this amazing story with me. I want to pull it apart and look at it together and reflect on what it has to say to us helpfully uh, in our daily lives. Uh, up to this particular point in the, the story, the rich man in the parable appears to be reasonably wise. Let me just credit that. Sometimes we have the tendency to think that when characters are upbraided or challenged by Jesus, uh, whether in a parable or in actuality, that Jesus is really sees them as spiteful, awful, hateful uh, people. They're Simon Legree's. This guy is not such a person. Jesus does not feel this. When we, Jesus meet, meets the rich young ruler and calls him to make sacrifices, uh, the Bible tells us that he looked upon him with love. He looked upon him with great love as he challenged him. And this particular man in the story uh, has through some combination of hard work and intelligence or fortune presumably, uh, gotten to a, to a pretty good place in life. I, I mean, he's not losing any sleep about how he's gonna pay off all of his debts. You get no sense of that anxiety. Uh, he's not going through his days anxious about how he's gonna make it through if the creek rises disastrously high or the, the storm comes sweeping in and ravages things. He's not anxious about that uh, at all because he's planned carefully. No, this man's very biggest question at this particular moment is where am I going to put all of the resources I've managed to save up. And this now is, is what's occupying. How to store more. 
how do I store even more? He says, I know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build a bigger barn, I, I'm gonna house all this hay, and then I'm gonna be able to step back, look at this great uh, set of barns I've got, put my feet up on the, on the coffee table, uh, pour a glass of something delicious, and think to myself, man, do I have it good. Do I have it good. It strikes me that in so many ways, uh, this ancient parable uh, could have been ripped right out of the, the news of today. Could have been taken right out of the popular media today. Uh, because in so many ways, this is the vision of success that dominates uh, certainly the life of so many people in American society, and I, I dare say even in other parts of the world. This is the vision that's always being sold to us, for example, by the financial planner ads on television. Pay attention to those over these next days, and you'll notice these themes uh, as, as we hear this sort of this encouragement. Don't, don't be a debtor, be a saver, be an investor. Why? So that one day, so that one day, you can take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And the ads are all picturing somebody that's gotten to that place in life. They're on the sailboat. Uh, they're, they, they're, they're enjoying the precious time with the grandchildren. And, and, and this is not a terrible vision. Um, this is not a, a bad vision of life. Uh, in fact, it, it, it's an apparently good goal in a lot of ways, except for one minor issue that Jesus goes on to point out in the remaining lines of the parable. But God said to the rich man, you fool, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? The key idea here is that God's concern is that in the process of managing our resources, it not be primarily for ourself. Uh, that that the, the function of, of stewardship is, is to put ourselves, good stewardship is to put ourselves in a position where we're okay ourselves, but we are then able to do even more with those resources for others. And I wanna think about that with you. Uh, and I want to give you an image that, that is a great counterpoint. I think I may have told this story on one other occasion, but there is in Los Angeles a very, very famous cemetery called Forest Lawn. And there are now multiple branches of this cemetery uh, all across LA. I've visited um, more than one of them. And, and this cemetery is sometimes referred to as Disneyland for the Dead. And it's called that because of the fabulous monuments and the amazing crypts and the spectacular fountains and the beautiful landscaping. It, Walt Disney himself, by the way, is, is buried at, at Forest Lawn. And I'm told that, um, that an enterprising um, resident of Forest Lawn arranged to have himself buried sitting upright in his Cadillac. They got a great big crane to lower the Cadillac into the hole, and he was sitting up, in, up upright in it, and, and they glued a cigar in his mouth, and a local groundskeeper seeing all of this is said to have remarked, man, 
Now that's really living. <laughs> it's really curious what comes to fill our imaginations as an example or a vision for really living. Uh, I think some people do believe that, that he who dies with the most toys or she who dies with the most toys wins. Um, although it's interesting, the discussion of toys never happens around the graveside. And I've been to a lot of those gravesides. It's not what people are talking about at that moment. And, and while not as extreme perhaps as that vision, a lot of people do tend to approach the subject of debt and savings and investments with the goal of building up such a big barn of these things that we can live on easy street the rest of our lives. But is that, is that really living in, in the way that, that we would want to define life? According to the Bible, uh, and that's certainly the teaching of Jesus, this is not life with a capital L. When Jesus talks about the abundant life that he's come to bring us, when he talks about the eternal life that he wants to usher us into, it, it, that image of the guy in the Cadillac and the cigar, it's just not, not even close to what Jesus is, is really thinking about. And, and one of the very best reasons to, to manage our money wisely and well is so that we can get into a position to enjoy the living that comes from giving. The living that comes from not being self-focused so much as, as other-focused. I love the way the, the, the famous Puritan preacher John Bunyan, who wrote uh, the famous book nobody reads anymore called Pilgrim's Progress, worth recovering that book for our times. Bunyan puts it in a little poem. There was a man, some called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. Why is it that some, so often the, the most affluent people, the wisest most affluent people of our time are thinking about, how do I get rid of it all before I go? What kind of impact can I have with my life? Um, the more they gave the more they had. In his reflection on Jesus' teachings, the Apostle Paul goes the length of saying this, and this is from his first letter to his protege, Timothy. Timothy said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And I want you to remember that phrase because I'm gonna come back to it. Command them, he says a second time, command them to, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That should remind you of the text that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 10, a different author who said that one of the roles of the church is that we be a community of people that spur one another on toward love and good deeds. This is just being recapitulated in a sense by Paul the same way because both the writer of the letter to the Hebrews and Paul know the heart of Jesus and they know what the kind of abundant life Jesus had in mind really means. And then he goes on and says to Timothy, in this way, in this way, by being uh, generous and willing to share, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life 
that is truly life. The greatest treasure, the only kind of treasure that survives the grave is the quality of the love that we have for other people. Faith, hope, love, abide, these three things only, and the greatest of these is love. So I hope you are noticing the interesting twist in what Paul says to Timothy here, and if you didn't, I wanna try and draw your attention to it, because in verse 17, Paul explicitly says that God richly supplies us or provides us with everything for what? Our enjoyment, for our enjoyment. In other words, God is not stingy. God is not some celestial Scrooge, upset when you're having a good time, upset when there's a smile upon your face and a song in your heart. In other words, Jesus is telling us that, that God is the father of great banquets, of great celebrations. He said, don't get it wrong. Don't, don't lose an understanding of what the heart of your heavenly father is. And the Pharisees, as we know, had lost a sense of the heart of the heavenly father. They thought the fact that Jesus had a good time in life, that he welcomed people that were ordinary and, and, and uh, messy people was a scandalous thing. Uh, Jesus uh, was known as one who ate and, and sat with sinners uh, God is the God of great banquets. He's the one who delights in putting the, uh, the best robe, a beautiful ring, a fine set of sandals upon his beloved child. These are not accidental details. This abundant generosity that God lavishes upon the prodigal son is a description of his heart towards every one of us. In no way, in no way does God romanticize or, 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 or glorify material poverty. The blessings that are experienced by the poor in, or the poor in spirit are not because of their poverty but because of the dependence that they feel on God and the closest they feel to God. God does not, on the other hand, glorify thoughtless prosperity. And that really is the twist in the story here. Because the lavishly generous God who wants us to have everything for our enjoyment commands us to be generous too. He commands us to be generous. He commands us to share our money, to share our possessions, to be rich in good deeds. In short, to be generous like he is. Money is such a powerful influence in our lives. Materialism, such a pervasive ideology or philosophy or lens through which to look at life that, that our Father in heaven has to command us to overcome it. Uh, the money God, mammon as Jesus put it, is so powerful, uh, more powerful. I can't, if it was powerful in the first century, what, how much power does it have today with all of the organs and the engines that, that, that mammon, the money God has for taking over people's lives? 
The truth, however, is that anybody who finds their way, and a bunch of you, you know this from your own personal experience, anyone who finds their way into the generous life comes to see that giving isn't an obligation so much as an opportunity. Not, not a duty so much as a delight. The chance to see these resources in motion, changing lives for the good, is a joy-producing experience. And, and, and when we become givers like God is a giver, we discover the life that is truly life, the, love, the life of love that, that overcomes even death itself and lives beyond into eternity. And if, like the rich man in this parable, you die tonight without having found that, without having established a pattern and a plan for how your life will be a throughput how your life will be a river rather than a reservoir, how it will be a conduit rather than a container. If you are a barn person, ah, what a loss. Then who will get what you have prepared? Asks Jesus. And you know the answer to that. The government will get it. The grave will get it. The rust and the recycler We'll get it. This is why I want to get practical with you today. And, and at the risk of making this sound like um, a financial planning seminar, I, I do want to try and offer some handles on this stuff for all of us to think about, including myself. Um, let's just suppose that you and I have gotten ourselves to the point where we have money and possessions that do not belong to the credit agency. Uh, let's, let's assume that at least some of us here in this circle have gotten control of our spending and of our savings, and we now have, maybe more than we ever have, a capacity to invest in giving if we chose to do that with our resources. This is not a wild supposition, um, because over the past, uh, 50 years, uh, real personal income in America, which is to say income adjusted for inflation, uh, is up by 50% for middle class Americans, and it's up by close to 70% for upper income households over the past 50 years. What's curious is, though income is so demonstrably up, uh, the percentage of, of resources, of disposable income that are being allocated to charitable giving is at a 40-year low right now. It is, it is at 1.7% of, of income. The average person is giving away only 1.7% of, of dispose, disposable income. And this is very, very curious. This is why I say the money God must be very, very powerful uh, that, that, that so much of it has to go towards all of these other things. Uh, we, as you may know, comprise 4.23%, little over 4% of the world's population lives in the United States. We control 30% of the world's wealth. Uh, in 2023, Americans spent $79 billion on weight loss products. 
we also spent $137 billion on our pets. And over the course of the next couple of decades, the baby boom generation, of which I'm a part, will pass on $53 trillion to somebody. Where will that go? Where will that go? I cite these statistics not to be critical, but to be contextual. And, and, and let's just suppose that someplace in all of this context, many of us will have the ability, like the boy we talked about last week, to give something to others. Some, some amount to others. The question I wanna ask you, and I'm gonna try and answer it, is how should we spend our money? How should we spend what's, what's in the barn? Are you open to hearing answer, an answer to that, by the way? Have I lost you at this point? Oh, I'm getting a little uncomfortable with the where this conversation's going. Because this is, if I could stress one important idea here, this is not actually from Dan. Um, this, is, this is from the teaching of God in Scripture. Um, imagine yourself in the, in the rowing shell, the rowing boat I talked about last week. You know, and, and as an oarsman, your job is to, is to listen to the voice of the coxswain, the coach. Well, as Christians, those of us in the boat with Jesus, we're listening always for, for his voice. We're listening to the words of Scripture. We're trying to let those things be the measure by which we are living our lives. So let me just outline, if I can, um, the priority investments that the Bible calls us to make. And they, and they come down to three three different categories of people. And in what uh, proportion and, and what order we ought to invest in these three different categories, I'm not gonna uh, try and tell you. Uh, listen to the Holy Spirit in your life. Uh, trust, trust your ability to discern what it is that God might be calling you to do. Uh, but if you're a follower of Jesus and therefore you take the Bible seriously, then I can definitely tell you there are three specific places where your giving should go. The first might surprise you. God says you should give to your family. You should definitely give to your family. Now, as in all practices of the Christian life. Our decisions in doing this need to be prayerful and careful ones. I am not called to give my family all that I have or all that they might want me to give them or that they might wish for, but I am certainly called to seek as I am able to give them what they truly need. Uh, stewardship guru Howard Dayton uh, writes in one of his essays, in our culture, we're experiencing a huge breakdown in this particular area of sharing. Not in all households, but in enough that it's a concern now. Husbands have failed to provide for their wives uh, or the mother of their children. Um, parents have sometimes neglected their children and grown sons and daughters have forsaken their elderly parents. 50%, by the way, of people that, that live in nursing homes uh, get fewer than one visit per year, and 50% of those folks have 
relatives living within 50 miles. Um, and this is, this is a, a neglect that Dayton challenges. In fact, he says, such neglect is solemnly condemned in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul says, and I quote, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Our families are our first church. Our families are the first place where the reign of God's truth and grace is meant to show up. And it's very, very important that, that we not miss that. Sometimes in churches, uh, you, the preacher talks as if, you know, God doesn't really care about your family that much. You know, give to the church or give to this or that. Um, God cares deeply for your, for your family. Um, the second area of giving for Christians is related actually to the first. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I will make it a priority to give to Christian ministries. Now, at my house, uh, Amy and I give to lots of things, as I'm sure you do as well. We give to our undergraduate colleges. We have given to veterans. We have given to uh, first responders. We've given to autism. We've given to breast cancer research and a whole bunch of other uh, worthy causes. But we give considerably more to Christian ministries. Why is that? For two reasons. The first, very personal. It's because we think of missionaries, church workers, servants of explicitly Christian agencies and institutions as our extended family. We think of them as our extended family. Why? Because we're gonna spend eternity with them. because they share the most important blood, the blood of Jesus with us. And, and we know that they also, that extended family, has a much more limited pool of generous cousins than, than all of those worthy causes that send us mailings. Do you see that the Christian ministries are sort of in a different category than the United Way or other good organizations out there. The second reason we prioritize giving to Christian ministries is a practical one. It's, it's with the same mentality that my wife Amy uh, invests more money in planting seeds and bulbs in our yard than she does in buying cut flowers. Very different budget for the planting versus the the bouquets, uh, and you can see why. Churches and Christian ministries are the seedbed out of which grows much of the charitable work of our world. The, the colleges that we attended, mine had a Christian motto. Uh, the hospitals where our kids were born, a lot of them have Christian names attached to the, even the organizations that support them. The nation that we live in, all of these entities grew out of the church and missionary movement of Jesus. They had their roots in the, in the Christian missionary movement of Jesus. So it feels so much more strategic, practical, 
to invest a larger portion of our giving in Christian causes because we know that they will end up seeding leaders and vision and resources in so many glorious places. Even a lot of secular organizations had their roots in the Christian movement, in the, in the upsurging passion to help and serve other people in the name of Jesus. So we keep wanting to, to seed that ground because without strong Christian churches and ministries, we are living in a cut flower society. I hope, I hope you're sharing that with your children, your grandchildren, your friends. The bloom will last only so long where there's not vital church, vital Christian ministry feeding the society and its moral vision and its sense of community. And one could argue that so many of the social problems of our day and the political problems of our day can be tracked to the decline in connectedness to the spiritual roots of our society. Man, I'm sounding old, but I think that's true. I think that, I really think that's true. So that's why we make a priority of giving to faith-based ministries and a significant majority of that giving going to our local church. Uh, So what's the priority that Christian ministries have in your giving? Um, How does that, how would you break that out as you look at the overall spreadsheet for you? The third and final category of people that that the Bible strongly commends for our investment are those who will perish without our commitment. Uh, Jesus calls us to give to the poor. Again and again, the Bible makes clear that, that, that God has a special heart for those who need a generous grace from others if they're gonna make it in this life. Uh, You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a famous, famous story. It really should be called the parable of the God Samaritan because it's a picture of the heart of God for people that are down in a ditch and can't get themselves out of it without somebody stopping, getting dirty, making sacrifices, going out of their way to lift somebody up. And Jesus so identifies with the poor that he says that the way we treat them is equivalent in his mind to the way we treat him. Whatever you do for one of these, the least of my brothers and sisters, you do for me or do not do for me. Every time you give to support the missionary mission partners of Christ Church that are out there working amongst the poor around the corner and around the world, every time you sponsor a child in the developing world, every time you give in in some other way to the most vulnerable people trying to lift them up, you're being a steward in a way that matters profoundly to the heart of Jesus. He smiles when you do that. He absolutely smiles. More than that, the Bible actually says that whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but whoever closes their eyes to them receives many curses. Wow. The principal idea there is that God's provision of further resources to us hinges, not maybe in a linear or mathematical way, but in some way, on what kind of stewards we are in relationship to the least of these. And that's a sobering, challenging, important 
idea to keep holding on to. Some of you will recall a, a study a couple of years ago in which I talked about um, the plight of the Jerusalem church back in the, uh, in the early years of the Christian movement. Uh, Jerusalem Christians were under a tremendous persecution. Uh, they were being attacked both by local religious authorities and also by the, by the Roman government. And they were being ostracized and they were being arrested and they were being fired from their jobs and they were being tortured and they were being killed in the most brutal way. And learning about this, the Apostle Paul said, uh, let's do something about this. And he sent an all points bulletin out to the, to the wider church, uh, just letting them know about the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. Because the Jerusalem believers met all three targets for giving. One, they were the extended family of the other believers. Two, they were the original Christian ministry, the original church. And three, they were undeniably poor. And so Paul says, let's do something about this. And the, the appeal letter, and this is how we even know about this, this uh, appeal, it came to the church in Corinth, which as you may know, was, was one of the more educated, financially capable communities in the whole Christian movement at this time. And Paul writes to the church at Corinth, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. You're so excellent. You're so amazing. Look what you've been able to build with your lives is what Paul's saying. Now, let it be a throughput. Excel also in this giving. And then, as some of you will, will recall, perhaps, from studying this passage, Paul adds on this extraordinary tidbit. He tells them about the church in the whole network of churches that is setting the pace when it comes to generosity. And surprisingly, it's not the church in Rome. It's not the affluent Ephesian church. It's not the folks up in Philippi. The church that's making the difference is, is the Macedonian church, which is itself poor and also under persecution. And Paul writes, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And then this is the part that really blows me away. Paul adds, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for this privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. What if you and I were like those Jesus people? What if our hearts were that moved by the needs of our family, of Christian ministries, and of the poor? What if you and I were that inspired by the grace of God that's met us in Jesus Christ, by his sacrificial love? What if that so impacted our hearts? What if we were so determined not to miss out on the overflowing joy that comes from exercising 
a rich generosity that we managed our finances not with the aim of expanding our barns, but in order to free up even more money and possessions to be given away. What if we were so attuned to the beauty and the goodness of this kind of life that we actually pleaded for the privilege of lifting even more people? What if we did this together? I don't know what you might say about that. I I don't know what others might say if they knew that you and I were doing it. But I do know what the one who stands not far away from your grave and mine says. Jesus says, now that's really living. Please pray with me. Lord, we look forward to the day when we're going to hear from your lips, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so you know where we are on that journey of faith and discipleship and stewardship. Uh, We just trust you, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to continue your good work in us and through us. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, as we prepare to go on our way today, I'm conscious that it's one thing to hear from a preacher. It's another thing to hear from one of your own brothers and sisters, or maybe a couple of them, about how God has been at work in their hearts and what that could mean as an example for us. I want to invite you, before we go to our final song, to listen to this wonderful testimony from a younger couple in the life of our church family. We're the Teneries. We've been coming to Christ Church for about 13 years. I think initially what attracted us to Christ Church were the uh, teaching and the worship. The teaching we just found to be super engaging and biblically sound. And from a worship standpoint, we really liked where things were moving. I started participating in MAPS, and you know, I think we both experienced when you join an organization inside a big church, it makes it a little bit smaller. At the time for me, it was men's fraternity, and next thing I knew, I was you know, making even deeper relationships with both men my age, but those older than me as well. I think we all feel a little lost, right? So being new parents, you know, having other families to connect with, and then being that this church is just a variety of people with different backgrounds and ages, just having mentors speak into us and helping us along the way, that's that's invaluable. I found out that I was diagnosed with kidney cancer, and one Sunday before I was going to have a surgery to have my kidney removed, a group of people met us in a little room on the side of the fellowship hall to lay hands on us, um, just to cover us in prayer before that surgery and just to surround us. That is like a small sliver 
of the way that I've received grace and received fulfillment, received what Christ Church has to offer. We wouldn't have friends that are family surrounding us had we not put ourselves out there to meet others. And Take Root, it was spiritually significant in a variety of ways. It was the first generosity campaign or, or really kind of any large effort that we had been a part of at Christ Church. I think like any young couple, finding our way between you know starting to raise kids, mortgage, and all those sorts of things are all still relatively new. And we knew that God was likely calling us to be faithful and also do it with the, the community here. We approached it with the hope that it would you know, really impact our faith and that we would learn to walk with God in new ways that we hadn't yet and, and as a couple. So I would say that it was not very easy for me initially to give financially. I was more than okay to give of my time and talents, but when it came to the money, I think I felt like I needed to see where it was going. We were going through the Lyft workbook and learning about the early church through the sermons, through our study together. I felt really convicted learning about the early church and how everybody gave what they had and that was okay, that was enough. And they were doing exactly what they were called to do, which was serve one another with the resources that they were given. And so all of that together just really solidified Lyft for us. You know, giving with the resources to the best of your ability, pooling it together for everyone. We do kind of have a plan to finish strong with our giving. We're really excited, especially with little but positive changes that have already started happening in Lyft. I'm excited in, in terms of how God's been faithful and how we've also heard other people speak about their stories of how he's been faithful. Hopefully, God will continue to do a work on our hearts and hearts of others to have us be challenged in new ways. 